The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to turn to God's Word together. We have been a series on uh, the five solos of the Reformation. Uh, uh, some of us, I won't name any names, but their name, their initials are Dan Princeppi has the, the, them uh, de- uh, tattooed on him. <laughs> If you're like a super ultra nerd, but if you're not a super ultra nerd and you don't know what the five solos are, we are going to be talking about those tonight. And so if you have your Bible, open up your Bible to Romans chapter three. Uh, We are going to be looking at Romans chapter three, verse 21 to 26. Romans three, chapter, Romans three, verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word tonight, we ask that you would help us to see your goodness in the gospel of Jesus that you are not only just and holy and righteous, but you have justified us freely by this incredible grace. And the way we get in on it, Father, is simply through faith. So we ask that you would teach us by your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, we, um, we looked at... Uh, the second of the solas, which is sola Christus, right? So for those of you people who speak Latin and were born in the 19th century. Uh, the first one is sola scripture, right? By scripture alone. The second one is Christ alone. The third one is faith alone. Fourth one is grace alone. We're kind of flipping those a little bit. And then the last one is the glory of God alone. These are the five truths that came out of what's called the, the Protestant Reformation. Happened 500 years ago to the day this Tuesday where Martin Luther, the original Boston brawler, got all fed up with the Catholic Church, taking money from people who didn't have any. He was Robin Hood at the time and nailed 95, not 95 Reeses, but 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg. And uh, God used that event to bring out these five truths that we now call the five solas. Um, The five solas are what we would call kind of at the heart of the gospel. They capture what does it mean for God, a gracious God, to come down and save sinful, wicked people like us, and not only to save us, but to make us a family. What, how does that happen? Like, you know, like, if you ever tell, like, a, like how did you guys get married? How did you guys meet? <clears throat> like, you always, like, you know, what's the engagement story? What's the dating story? And all that stuff. Like, these are basically, if we could put those back up, these are basically the story of how God saves us. And so we started by looking at Scripture alone. And we saw how scripture is the foundation and the authority of, our, of the Christian life. And scripture alone, right? Not me, not the church, not the Pope, not anybody else. Scripture alone is the voice of God's authority over our lives. And then last week we looked at Christ alone. 
Christ is the one. He's the focus of everything about our lives. He's the focus of the Bible. He's the focus of God's attention and glory. Um, and so last week we were looking about how the, the Catholic Church at the time had basically set things up so that it was, it was a heist, right? They had taken over and they had displaced Jesus as the center and made all these kind of like indulgences and things like that, the way in which people related to God. <clears throat> and the way in which we relate to God, sorry, I've got a, something in my throat. The way in which we relate to God is what we're looking at tonight, Right? So we looked at the authority of God. How do we know who God is? Where, who, how is God speaking to us in Jesus? And then how do we relate to him? That's at the heart of this. Because what was going on at the time is that um, basically the Catholic Church was saying the way you relate to God and build a relationship with God is, yeah, you, you believe, you trust in Jesus, but that salvation, the salvation that God gives you in Jesus is maintained by grace and faith and works. So you maintain your salvation by doing some extra stuff. So it's kind of like um, if you've ever gotten like an Ikea gift for your birthday, right? Like you have to like keep putting it together, right? In order to be able to enjoy it. Like this salvation that God gives us this by, uh, by Jesus, uh, they were teaching you have to maintain it. And the reformers saw that and they're like, that is not in the Bible. The way you maintain your relationship with God and the way you enter in your relationship with God are the same thing. It's only by faith alone. Right? Justification, that's the word. How do we stand before God? The right to be able to stand before God. That's what they called being able to have this relationship with God. And so that's why we're looking at Romans 3 tonight. This, this paragraph that we just read, Romans 3, 21 through 26, Martin Luther, um, he called this the center of the center of the center of the Bible, right? Of the whole Bible, these six verses are the absolute center. Thank you very much. I was dying here. <laughs> the, these six verses, they, were, they are the center of the Bible. Like, I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to be able to, like, make that sort of claim about any Bible verse, but Martin Luther, I mean, he's got, like, 60 volumes that he wrote in his life. Like, he's a pretty smart guy. And he said, of all the Bible, these six verses are the center of what God is showing us in the whole Bible. And at the center of what we're looking at tonight is that faith receives the life and death of Jesus as our confidence before God. See, Martin Luther knew a lot about confidence. He was a monk, and his entire life as a monk, he had lived in extreme anxiety. Does God love me? Does God love me not? You know the pick off the rose petals or flower petals? Love me, love me not. That was his life because that is what the church had taught him about the gospel. It's not quite sure whether God loves you or loves you not. And Martin Luther, in delving through this paragraph, began to see that faith receives the life and death of Jesus as our confidence before God. Jesus is your only confidence before God. So that's what we're going to be looking at this tonight because I want you to live your life tomorrow, and I want you to live your life this next week confident in your relationship with God, not anxious. Does he love me? Does he love me not? But confident in our relationship with God. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at faith, how uh, faith receives the bad news. We're going to start with that, how faith receives the bad news, how faith receives the good gift, and then how faith receives the just justifier. So we're going to pick up at verse 21 here, and we're going to start out by seeing 
that faith receives the bad news. So I'm going to read a few verses before this, and then we'll get right into 21. Now what we have, uh, actually starting at verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, that's God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This, uh, this reality that Paul starts out with, right? If this is the most central paragraph of the whole Bible. This is not the way you would do a marketing campaign today. Hey guys, your target audience, you all are a bunch of rotten people. <laughs> like that's not how you would start out a marketing campaign, right? That's not how any presidential candidate or mayoral candidate starts their pa- campaign. All you people are horrible. People who do that don't make it very far. But Paul starts out with that and he says that we have all, quote, sin and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And he starts going to this old outmoded word called sin. And he says, sin is not just because you, you know, didn't do things my way, or you voted for wrong, the wrong candidate, or you wore a skirt that was too short, or any sort of thing like that, right? Sin is what does he, he define sin as? Sin is, right, fallen short, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that means is all people do not uphold and honor and treasure God the way we ought. Right? God has value, he has size and worth, and all of us do not treasure him the way we should. All of us do not think that he's as great and meditate on him and talk to him and worship him and give him credit for all the things that he's done. That's what he's saying. The human heart is basically like a plagiarizing machine, and it basically says, God is not the source of all of these good things in my life. But that's a bit of like, uh, seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Just out of the gate. This is how Paul starts out. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is a bit of a hard category for us to get these days because um, by nature, we tend to just kind of orient towards, um, I'm not a Mother Teresa, right? <laughs> I'm not like that good, but I'm not like a Hitler. So I'm not like that bad. So like, I'm kind of like somewhere in the middle. Like, I, don't, I mean, Hitler seems like a very far on the other extreme from, from Mother Teresa, you know what I mean? But, like, we're kind of like, you know, like on a scale of one to ten, we're maybe like a four of a five, and maybe on a good day we're a six. Um, but the challenge is that when we think of, like, evil people, we think of, or bad people, we think of, like, those people over there. And we see it all the time right now, right, with, you know, political, how things are so, like, politicized, and, like, those people on that side are horrible, and we're the just and righteous ones. Um, but the reason is that the reason that it's so hard to get that that like that we are all of us are on equal playing field in terms of like sin and wickedness and just horrible people is um is that we like to think that those people are really bad and they're not like us right they're not they're them and they're horrible but we're not that bad right which which honestly um is why all of us are totally caught off guard when we hear like you know Joe Schmo did such and such a horrible thing, right? Like, I would have never thought that somebody would have done, like, Joe would have done that. Sorry if your name's Joe. 
Right. That's, that's actually a part of the whole, for our children's ministry stuff, we have a thing called Ministry Safe. And one of the things we do with Ministry Safe is we train people to recognize child predators. And we show people, we show pictures, this is, a, this is somebody who's been a child predator. And they always look like the person in the mirror or the person next door. Like they look just like us. That's the hard part about sin is that we like to think that it's those people and not us, right? It's like, it's those people, but it's not the person in the mirror, which is frankly why Paul gets into saying, uh, the law and the prophets bear witness to it, right? Basically, goes down in verse 5, right? Uh, verse 25, um, all of this stuff in the Bible, this is to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. The reason the Bible is so long is because God is drawing for us a very clear mirror and showing this is what you are like. You are not as great as you think you are. Every time that we think that we can kind of wiggle around like, well, I'm not like that person. We get to another story in the Bible and we're like, oh, that's that's a little close to home. Those struggles, those dynamics are ones that I've seen or experienced. The Bible exposes our hearts, but it cannot change us, right? You cannot shove this Bible into the middle of your chest and change who you are. And you cannot look to this Bible and say, I'm going to keep all these rules and it's going to change who I am. That's not what this was intended to do. Right? That's why verse 21, the law and the prophets bear witness to it, but God has manifested our salvation apart from it. Um, sin Sin is like, uh, if I could just kind of use this analogy, um, I got this, I just want to give you a heads up, I got this totally ripping it off from Tim Keller who got it from Charles Spurgeon. So like totally ripping this off. But sin is like an acorn. Acorns, you pick it up. I mean, they're falling off the tree right now. You pick them up and you look at them and you're like, man, this thing is not that big. It's not, it's not really that big, right? I mean, maybe you get like a big one like that. Like if it's really, really, really big. But you look at this acorn and you think, it's not, it's not that big a deal. But inside this one acorn is another tree that will grow and that tree will bear more acorns. And those acorns will bear more trees. So inside this one acorn is an ocean of wood and trees that is just waiting to burst forth. And our sins may not be like other people's sins, but in our own hearts is the capacity and the ability to do all the wrongs that are written down in the records of history. We are no different than all the horrible people. We have the same composition. We're made with the same stuff. We are exactly like them. We have the capacity to become some of the worst people that we read about in history. And the reason, there's, uh, there's a guy named uh, Blaise Pascal. I don't know if you guys know his name. Um, I have a slide of his quote here. Uh, and I, mis- I miswrote his name uh, because I went to public school. And um, it's actually B-L-A-I-S-E, but, you know, I went phonetically. But um, Blaise Pascal, he says, Certainly nothing offends us so rudely as this doctrine or this teaching of original sin. Yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. What he is saying is that without without this teaching, we don't make any sense to ourselves. 
Because you and I know, if we were to sit down and talk and we were to start digging down into the, the dark closets of your heart and the things that you don't want to talk about and the things that you've thought and the things that have been said to you, that some of it just don't make sense. Like, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I was a part of that. I don't know why I continue to go to these things. It's because sin does not make sense. But if you don't have that in the equation of how you understand yourself, the bad news about yourself... You won't make any sense because then you're going to, it's going to constantly be racking you. Why did I do this? Well, just put it simply, God is rational and sin is irrational. Sin will never make sense, but you will never understand yourself apart from this horrible news, faith receiving this, hor- this bad news, that we're sinners, that we are in desperate need of God's help. You see, because any real change that's going to happen in our lives, any real change that's going to happen in how we relate to God or how we relate to ourselves or relate to each other, is going to be first by just confessing, look, I'm a wreck and I need help. Right? I, just want to, I, remember this one, I remember hearing this once, fathers and husbands should be the first repenters in their family. I remember thinking like, man, that strikes home because I do not want to come to my wife or my family and think you guys are the problems. If we're going to take this seriously, I want to take this seriously. I'm the first problem in my marriage. I'm the first problem in my family. I'm the first problem in this church, right? Like, you guys are never going to have, like, a perfect church because I'm the pastor here, let alone a member, right? I'm the first problem in all of my problems. Now, that does not diminish, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. That does not diminish that when evil and wicked and horrible things happen to us, that those are our fault, right? There are legitimately horrible things, and we are totally the victims of them. So I'm not denying that reality. That, that's kind of a separate topic. But the way in which I respond to the world, the way in which I respond to the people around me, begins by believing this first part of the gospel, that I am the most horrible person in the equation. And what this does is that it sets up mercy alone to be the solution. Not anything that I can bring to the table, not anything where I can flag God down to pick me up, it sets up mercy alone to be God's solution to this equation. So let's pick up in verse 24. Faith receives the good gift. Verse 24 and 25, right? I'm, I'm, let me just pick up in verse 23 just because it makes a little bit more sense. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. This is what we are, so we're talking about faith, right? Faith receives, right? We, we've just said, the first part of this is that faith receives this horrible news. Boom, you are not. You're, you're not gonna be able to fix this problem. But then what does faith, what is, what is the what of faith? Like, what are you believing, right? Because faith latches onto something, right? Faith is this internal muscle that says that and not that, right? So we've just said not that, right? Not yourself. <laughs> what is the that that faith is receiving? The good gift, the, fi- the gift of God that God gives us. What is it about the gospel that faith receives as a good gift? So let's look at verse 24. We are justified... By his grace as a gift. 
right? When I give a gift to somebody, it's not because they deserve it or they've earned it, right? When we have a gift that we're, we're giving to somebody, it's because we want to give it to them. We want them to have whatever we're giving them. Because <laughs> if it was something that they earned, that's called payment, right? That's called a job, <laughs> right? When you get a paycheck, it's not a gift because your boss is so nice. Your bosses have made a contract with you. This is God's gift. We are justified as a gift, right? Second thing is through the redemption that is in Jesus. There is a story, this drama of God sending a son to redeem us, his one and only son to redeem us, right? To take everything and turn it upside down, right? To take all the horrible things of the world, or if you are uh, a Stranger Things fan and you're watching Stranger Things 2 right now, right? We all live in the upside down and God and Jesus is turning it right side up, right? Just to, that's an off-the-cuff analogy, so don't quote me on that one. But God, who put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, so propitiation. Man, that is not a word that we use on a regular basis, is it? Like, hey, Michelle, like, uh, can you, like, propitiate my cereal for me? <laughs> like, that's not something that we use on a regular basis. Propitiation is this word that is used to capture this idea that we deserve one thing and it is diverted so that we get another, right? Do you ever have like traffic where you, you should be going down one road and then you get diverted around, right? If you kept down that road, you'd be going down that road and you would run smack dab into the construction equipment, right? But you are moved around to another direction. So what, God, what this verse is saying, what God is telling us here, we deserve the wrath of God poured out on us because we have given a big, strong fist to God in all of the ways in which we uniquely do that. We deserve God's wrath. And so God said, I want you to be in my family. And so I'm going to send my son to stand in the way because he wants it and I want it. He wants you to be saved from your sin. So I'm sending my son to stand in the way so that he gets the wrath you deserve, and you don't. That's, that's called propitiation, right? It's taken and put on Jesus that we might receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's verse 22, right? The righteousness, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So you see, the gospel, this is what... This is what's so incredible about the gospel is that all the horrible things that we have done and thought and are capable of doing, that we are broken and despise God, right? Those things are just like natural and innate to us. And we deserve to be left to ourselves to become the, the, hor- like the, the, the development of that horrible tree in our hearts forever and ever and to be crushed under God's wrath forever and ever. But Jesus comes and guys, can you, can you picture this? Jesus, who was perfect in every way, right? He never had a begrudging thought, right? If Jesus got cut off in traffic, he didn't do what you and I do, right? <laughs> just, just to kind of pick up like a small example, right? When Jesus stubbed his toe in the road, he didn't complain about that rock. Who put that rock there, right? When people lied about Jesus, he didn't start tweeting about how horrible like his life is on Facebook or Twitter, right? When Jesus lived his life, he was 
perfectly submitted to God. God, I, I love you and I will follow you all of my days in perfect submission, whatever happens. That was Jesus' attitude. He, he never sinned. And yet, because you see this drama that we're laying out here, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that's the gospel story where Jesus stands before a crowd and is condemned as an, as an innocent man. He is condemned for crimes he never committed. And he walks up a dusty hill to a blood-sprouted cross, sit between two criminals who jeer and yell at him, and is the object of scorn by all the people of the world, mocked and ridiculed, because that's what we deserve to be. Oh, so you think you're so great. I'll mock you to your face for all eternity. That's what we deserve to be left to. But Jesus, he takes our place. He, the propitiation word, he stands in our place so that he receives on himself. For those three hours in that afternoon where it was totally dark and the earth quaked when he died, he let out a breath. It is finished, right? It is finished so that all those things, all this, the ways in which your sin has a claim on you and you feel identified by it and I will never be better because I'm always whatever the blank is for you. Jesus broke the power of those things over us. It is finished so that when he rises from the dead, he says, not only is your guilt, your guilt and, and sin canceled, but here's the thing. All the perfect things that I did, that my life is defined by, all the ways in which he emotionally, spiritually, verbally, physically responded to God that, in the ways that we should, right? That's, that's given to us. Like, that's accounted to us. That's verse 22 when it says, the righteousness of God. That is Jesus, all the merit of his life, all the good things that he's ever done, all the good things of who he is as his person, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here's what the gospel is. The gospel is a two-part thing. The gospel is all your sins and the death of your sin canceled in the death of Jesus so that all the good things about Jesus and the life of Jesus are given to you right? It's as though God takes the, the coat of all of your death and puts it on Jesus, and he takes the coat of Jesus' life and goodness and puts it on you, right? That's the, the gospel is not cancel debt, now go and live as you want, or make a better, you know, make a better run at it, or do a better job this time around. Uh, second chances always get a better job done. No, the, the gospel is everything that you need is done without you even entering the picture, <laughs> It's, it's the word is objective. It is outside of you. The gospel is a good gift. You see, when we say, when it says that's the, the gift of God, that's the gift that God gives us. You're a total wreck. That seed, that acorn of sin in your heart, let me take care of that. But you're not going to be a part of how I take care of it. You're going to receive it. So that's why he says, right, at the end of verse 25, or middle of verse 25, to be received by faith, this good gift. We receive it, right? We, it is something that we get. And then we get all the privileges that come with it, right? Have you ever gotten into something like a, uh, have you ever been someplace and you're totally on the coattails of somebody else? Like, um, I've gone to a few conferences and 
I virtually never pay for them because I'm just like, I'm the helper for somebody else, right? So I just like, I'm like, you know, some bookstore, um, and he needs a helper, and so he gets a free ticket, and so I get the ticket, and I go in with him. Like, I get access to all these things. I just go in and act like him. The gospel is that all the ways in how God the Father treats Jesus, we now get access to that. Like, that's how God treats us. Right, so, so when the Father is listening to Jesus pray and hearing Jesus crying out, and asking for God to do things, and depending on God for provision, God, I, I need to pay the bills tomorrow. Father, I trust you. It's as though Jesus were praying that. Jesus is the one praying, Father, I depend on you, but I need to pay the bills tomorrow. The Father, his ear is leaning in, not because you and I are so deserving of it, but because Jesus is deserving of it, and God treats us like we're in Jesus. Right, that's, that's, that's what that means, right? The confidence of your faith is not dependent on how good or bad you are, right? The confidence of your faith is because of how good Jesus is and God treats you like it. Here's one of the things that has happened for me in my own life that I think that this, this dynamic of what we're talking about, how it plays out. Let's say that you are misunderstood. For whatever reason, somebody has misunderstood you Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's a legal situation where you're in the courts. Somebody has misunderstood you, and you were being, like, you're totally being put in a light of, like, you're the worst person that's ever lived. Has it ever happened to you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see, the confidence that you have and the, and the peace of your heart do not depend on being understood, right? Like, oh, I'm going to make them understand, like, that's what I think about when I mow the yard, right? I just like think about like all the ways I'm going to get back at people for misunderstanding me or doing me wrong. Um, the reality is the worst thing that could be said about you that's true was said about you on the cross. The best thing that could have been said about you that's true was declared over Jesus when he rose from the dead. So that your hope and dependence upon God and hope for peace, like you receive them in the gospel because like, look, like the worst thing that could have happened or said or been done is that I could have been left in my sin all to my own and, mis- and, and correctly labeled as, right, a luster, a murderer, an adulterer, a liar, a thief, whatever it is that's defining our lives that could have been said about us and been true for all eternity. But it was said over Jesus so that as we engage all these things which were misunderstood legitimately or whatever, like, look, okay, actually, the worst thing that could be said here, this is probably, probably true, but the worst aspect of it was said over Jesus on the cross, so that now, look, I, I have the confidence that God loves me con- completely and permanently and forever in Jesus. So now I can engage this problem and say, like, okay, let's work it out and figure out how to, fo- how to solve this problem because God has now... He's given me his ear to answer my prayers in Jesus, right? So that my confidence is not dependent upon whether like I get understood or not, but it's actually dependent upon, okay, God, I'm going to depend on you and Jesus to help me. How would it change your spiritual life? How would it change your spiritual life? If you were to engage God or you were to be received by God, like how Jesus deserves, 
How would it change your spiritual life if you were to talk to God like how you, how you can read in the Bible how Jesus talks to God? Like how did, if you were to imagine that you were Jesus talking to God, how would it change the dynamic of confidence in your spiritual life? Would you go to God with more confidence? Would you go to God with more dependence, with, with a sense that you're not annoying God? I don't know if you ever feel like you're annoying God or a, a nuisance to God or somehow like inconvenient to God. Jesus is never inconvenient to God. And when you receive the good gift of God in Jesus, that's true about you. You are never an inconvenience to God. You are never annoyance or kind of like, oh, like again. Whatever the problem is, right? God eagerly, right? see this whole story is that God wants you to be in his family, right? All right. I won't get carried away, guys. Let's pick up in verse 26. Faith receives the just justifier. Verse 26. It is to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, we're picking up on this faith idea. Right, all that God has done, all that we've talked about, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, here's the interesting thing. Faith is not, that your personal faith is not what saves you. Jesus the one that your faith latches on to. Jesus is the one that saves you. The reformers use this phrase as faith as the instrument of our salvation, right? We are saved by faith alone. That is the only thing that connects me to Jesus. It's not faith and then with a little bit of works, I stay in Jesus. Jesus saves me and my faith connects me to him, right? But it is the strength of Jesus. It's who Jesus is that saves us. Right, and that faith that we have, I think if we were to put verse 22 and verse 24 together, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for, for all who believe are justified by his grace as a gift. I think that what Paul is indicating here is that even that faith that reaches out and touches on Jesus, that's a part of the gift. Right? The gift that we get is the faith to trust in the gift. Right? Can we go back to that real quick? Right, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Right, we all for all who believe who reach out in faith to trust Jesus. That is a part of the grace of the gift that justifies us. We are freely accepted, freely made right in God's presence, freely declared perfect and innocent in Jesus through this faith that reaches out and touches and holds on to Jesus. But even that's a gift. It's the instrument. Our faith is not what we tell God makes us worthy of talking to him, right? Our faith is not what gets God's attention. The only thing that gets God's attention about us is that we're desperately in need of him. And so he gives us this grace of faith to be able to reach out and hold on to him and receive him to be made right in Jesus. So our faith is not is not the main point here, right? If you were to take, uh, if you were to go down to the Boston Museum of Art or go to the Courier here and you look at these magnificent paintings, 
wow, look at, look at how beautiful this is. You don't say, man, you know what, that artist, I mean, the artist was great, but that paintbrush, that's the main act right there. The paintbrush, paintbrush made it happen. I mean, you could make a better paintbrush, I'm sure. But who's the main, like, when you look at the artwork, you think, man, that's beautiful. You think of the artist, right? Your faith is that paintbrush. God is painting a glory story of Jesus' redemption over your lives. And your faith is how it's being done, but your faith is not the main point, right? Because it says, so that he might be just and the justifier. He is the one who upholds the glory of God, right? Remember how we talked about at the beginning? We're, we're all, we're, we've all got our fist in God's face for all, you're not worthy, this is my story, and we're plagiarizing God's glory. God must be upheld as the source and, and life of all the universe. So he's just, right? He's the holy one. But he's also the justifier. He's the one who sends Jesus to make us right, to cancel the debt of our sin, and to give us the righteousness, the goodness of Jesus, to be counted as our own, so that he is the one that we get, right? right the point of this pulp, the doctrine of faith alone, is not to say, your faith is so awesome. It's so that you get God, right? The point of the gospel is not so that you like get your, your debts canceled and that now you can go and take all these random Bible verses and say, these are mine. You go into your life tomorrow saying, I get God in the gospel. I get Jesus as mine, which helps us when our faith is horrible, when we are weak and sinful, right? Because here's the thing, the strength of of the gospel and the strength of your salvation does not depend on your faith. It depends on Jesus. The beautiful thing about your faith is not that you believe in Jesus. It's Jesus. The, the strength in your faith is not, I have no doubts today. It's Jesus. Jesus is the strength, he's the beauty, he's the confidence of our faith. So that, look, if you get up tomorrow, and by 8 o'clock in the morning, you have yelled at your kids, kick the cat. We should kick cats. But if you've kicked the cat and you've, you know, you've cursed at somebody on Facebook and you've thought you know, mean thoughts about your boss, God still looks to you and will answer your prayers and is eager to be near you because of Jesus, not because of how bad a day you've had, Right? God doesn't love you anymore if you've had a good day and you've done your devotions and you've sang 10 worship songs and you prayed for the person who cut you off in traffic. God doesn't love you more if you do that. He treats you the same and leans into you the same and is your father the same because you are in Jesus. Not less, and he doesn't pull back if you're having a bad day. You see, our confidence, our confidence in our Christian lives is only, only Jesus Christ. And it's only a receiving posture. It's only a posture that says, Jesus is enough. Jesus is everything. Faith alone delivers us to God himself because we receive Christ as our only confidence before God through faith. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for all these good things that you've given us in Jesus, that he is enough, that he is glorious, 
that he is good and that we get him. And not only do we get him, God, but we get the cancellation of all of our debt and sin and horrible things that we've done. And then we get treated like Jesus at your table. God, would you stir our faith again tonight to lean into him and to trust our strong and good Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.